listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Good morning, Anthem Church. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can begin to open them up to Galatians chapter 5. And so, um, do just want to start out by recognizing um, that we lost a great one in Billy Graham this past week. Um, Billy Graham was an evangelist um, and lived to the age of 99 years old. I believe he passed away on Wednesday. And so, it's just interesting. He's, He's kind of a, of a different generation uh, than myself, but just look upon his ministry with great respect um, to see how God used Billy Graham. And as an evangelist, what Billy would do is would amass groups of people, large crowds, and he'd simply stand up and just preach the gospel, tell people about Jesus. In fact, uh, if familiar in the life of Billy Graham, at his crusades, these events, nearly 215 million people attended and heard the gospel. Uh, he got into 185 countries to do these crusades. It's, it's incredible. And what God did through that, um, I believe his staff has recorded 3.2 million people having said they received Jesus at one of these crusades. And it's not only the, the gospel and how Billy preached just straight from scripture, but even just his contributions, he was a pastor to presidents in some regards in, in meeting with them and counseling them. In fact, even his contribution with ra- racial segregation in the South. At one of his events, they had actually set up ropes for different sections. If you're an African-American, you gotta sit here. And if you're a white person, you gotta sit here. Billy Graham himself gets down and took down the ropes and watched his lead usher walk out. Wasn't gonna have anything to do with it. But Billy (laughs) preached what we preach. Through scripture, we just looked at Galatians where it says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. Billy, knowing what the Bible said, just went forward in a time without what had been frowned upon. And he quoted, I think it's maybe D.L. Moody that, that originally said this, or Carson. says, someday you will hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. And I just wanna start by just praying and thanking God for men like Billy Graham, women who filled with the same Holy Spirit that we have, that God has used them to have incredible ministry platforms. He was just a man, but a man that God used to preach to 215 million people. (laughs) So I just wanna praise God for his life, and um, then we'll dive in. So Lord, we do. We thank you for Billy Graham and the ministry, and perhaps some of us are a direct result of that ministry. Lord, we praise you for his boldness, and thank you for him, and, uh, and pray that those that, that gave their life to you, surrendered under that ministry, um, would continue to walk in you. And so we just pray, and pray, Lord, that you would, again, use your word powerfully this morning that it's not the man, but it's the message, that's your message, that it would come forth. And so just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're gonna talk about today, our text, Galatians chapter five, verses one through 15, is about freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom, and so when, I think sometimes when people hear freedom, they're like, 
sweet, <laughs> like get to go crazy. Uh, and in fact, some kind of spiritual leaders have avoided the topic of Christian freedom because you don't want to preach freedom because people might just use that as, as a license to go sin. And so kind of one of the bad assumption, assumptions is that if we preach freedom, that people might just go crazy. And so people avoid preaching it at all. That's a bad assumption. Kind of like, I think another bad assumption, I'm a father to four beautiful daughters, right? And they're all pretty small right now. Our oldest is seven years old. And this assumption is made of a dad with daughters that, oh, once your daughters start dating, you're gonna have to stay up late cleaning your guns because you're gonna have to run some boys right out of your house, I'm sure of it. And it's fun, I mean, to play along with and you know, to build a larger arsenal, sure. Like, that's all, it's all great. But, but it's an interesting assumption, isn't it? I mean, in some regards, it assumes that my daughters will have poor judgment when it comes to men. Assumption that's being made that, it, that they will have poor judgment, so these, these boys that they shouldn't be talking to are gonna come around the house and you're gonna have to run them off. What does that say to my daughters? What, even how effective is it ultimately, you know, to be cleaning the guns? I don't know how effective that really is. In fact, when I hear that, I'm more challenged to, to think about spending less time on how I'm gonna intimidate young men and spending more time preparing and building my daughters up. Right, because if my daughters were secure in the love that their daddy has for them and the secure in the love of the Lord, they're not gonna give those guys the time of day. And I think of it as like right now, putting my daughters up like Rapunzel high up in this tower where if they are so affirmed, that they are so secure, that it's gonna take a real man to climb and scale that wall and bring them down, right? So it's a bad assumption that, well, your daughters are gonna have poor judgment and you're just gonna have to run guys off. Does that make sense? And so you take something that's just a given that people say, look at it a little bit different lens, and I think the same thing we wanna do today with Christian freedom. So we wanna take what Christian freedom and look at it through a right lens because a bad assumption is that Christian freedom will lead to people abusing grace and treating people poorly. And so what does Christian freedom, what should it bring about? And so Galatians chapter five, verse one, we're gonna see Christian freedom and what we're to do with it. Says this, I'm reading out of the ESV, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Let's stop there. He's saying, for freedom. Jesus wants us to be free, and so he set us free. Luke covered that well a couple weeks ago, that Paul Harvey illustration of the birdcage and, and the Jesus died on a cross to forgive our sins so that we could be free like birds being let out of a cage, there's freedom that we have. That is why for, for freedom, Christ set us free. Now, how to stay free is to stand firm. And the other alternative you see right there in verse one, do not submit to the yoke of slavery. That's how to not stay free, okay? So this idea that we're, we're called to be free because of what Jesus has done, 
Here's how to stay in that freedom. Here's how to not. And so he's gonna take the first chunk of verses, uh, two through 13, and he's gonna explain, this is what it looks like to not be free. None of this should be new. If, if you're joining us, maybe it's new, but we've spent six weeks talking about this because this was the Galatians problem. As they were returning to slavery, like a bird that's been free, flying back into a cage, and so he goes again, and so I wanna cover this because our text covers it, but not as exhaustively as what's been already done. You can listen to those podcasts, but we're gonna go there because our text goes there. In verse two, understand the tone. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. We're gonna time out there. You see who he's talking to again, right? It's this group that really believes that circumcision is gonna make them right with God. Now, if you haven't figured out what circumcision is, I'll just cover it in broad strokes. Parents, you can explain this later to your kids. But circumcision, it's a sign, kind of like a tattoo, only more painful and less artistic, right? It's just a sign. And what he's saying there in verse three, that if, if you wanna follow the law, if you're gonna go with these days and months and you're gonna follow the law, there's 613 Old Testament laws, if that's your role, you're gonna be obligated in verse three to keep the whole thing. If you seek to be justified by the law, then you have to be perfect. You have to follow all of them. And it's futile. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. One little misstep, and you're guilty of breaking it all. And Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not meant to save us. In Galatians 3, when we were there, we, we understood what the law was to be about. The law is like an x-ray. Remember that illustration? The law is like an x-ray. It doesn't, it doesn't fix the problem. The x-ray didn't cause the problem, but it shows you what's there. And that's what the law does, and, and we have it on the screen. Galatians 3, by way of review, says, So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so the law was just meant to show us that we're broken. And thus, we would invite Jesus into our lives. Acknowledging God, forgive us that we have fallen short, that we have lied, that we have coveted, that, that we have committed adultery in, in our hearts, that we have not honored you. The law reveals that we've sinned. And so that's the purpose of the law. And so he's, he's going, why? Why would you return to slavery? Why would you want to go this route of, of circumcision? He's saying, don't do that. Man, slavery, like that religion is ultimately slavery. And this is, I know, because this is how I grew up. And I'm not blaming my parents <laughs> 
for my religious tendencies. I'm not blaming any one denomination, but that is certainly how I grew up. And we had Bibles in our house. I could have read them and probably deducted something different. But here's a real thing. I thought the more painful church was on a Sunday, the more pleased God would be with me. Because I thought God wants sacrifice, and so the longer this guy talks and the more I don't understand, he's probably happier with that. Since the real mentality of a 15, 16 year old young man, I'm like, it's painful, so therefore, you know, it's gotta be good. And I really believed that if I did enough good things, if I did more good things than bad things, that God would be happy with me and he would let me into heaven. So by definition, a very religious person growing up. And what he's saying is if you're trying to do this based on your good things and and doing more, he's saying if you're trying to do this through works, be it circumcision, you are severed from Christ. I don't know if you watch those kind of movies, but I this severed, like that's the only time I've seen like severed stuff is, is like, it is graphic. He's saying that's what you are if you're not, if you're trying to do these, these works, you're, you're severed, you're cut off. You who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. I'd say it like this. If you're trying to get God to like you based on your own efforts, it's really counterproductive. We cannot connect to God based on our own efforts. If you're doing it on your own, you're severed from Christ. And and it really does lead to a level of guilt because I was trying to earn favor with God. I was trying to do these right things. And ultimately, couldn't. (laughs) Because it was inevitable that something bad would happen where I would act out of my flesh and the level of guilt that that produced. And he clarifies that there in four, that there will be this this guilt because if you don't know Jesus, you don't understand the grace that God has for us and the forgiveness. And so someone had to explain to me by God's grace when I was 17, it's not about what you do, it's about what's been done. This idea from Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not one. Nobody's, Nobody's a good person. And you might look good in comparison to other people, kind of like how sheep, sheep look white when they're out on like the green pasture next to others, and then it snows and like, you're dirty, right? Like, so it is, like, you look pretty good in comparison to coworkers or maybe your spouse, you're like, I'm a pretty good person. And then you see the righteousness of Jesus, you're like, I'm not not that good, (laughs) right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. Ephesians 2 Eight says, for it is by grace you've been saved. Romans 6, 23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. Anyone who trusts in his name, Romans 10, 11, will not be put to shame. We're not made right based on what we do, but it's based upon what has been done on the cross. That's how we're made right. It's Jesus, because if, if we could earn it, then did Jesus die in vain? Absolutely, so... No, there's a reason that God had to send his one and only son to live a perfect life and to die in our place. And so to try and work around that and earn heaven in another way, the only way is through Jesus. And so our hope has to be solely in him. My hope that God would let me into heaven can't be, well, 
I'm a pastor, you know, my name should be on there somewhere, right? It's Jesus. In fact, you're gonna see a baptism. <laughs> this is just tap water. I'll show you where we got it. It's not gonna wash away sins. It's not gonna change anything. You're gonna see Andrew proclaim that his trust is in Jesus for forgiveness of his sins. Even praying a prayer, that's oftentimes the expression, but our our hope isn't in a prayer that's prayed. Our hope has to be in Jesus. And so he's gonna talk and he's gonna switch to a different crowd. Now he switches in verse five. He's saying, you, if you try and do that, you're severed. He's gonna switch to the we crowd in verse five. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You know what he's saying? That this hope that we can have, that we eagerly wait for, is found in Jesus. And if we're in Jesus, circumcision, not circumcised, doesn't matter. Because it only matters that if we're in Jesus and we've asked him to forgive us our sins. And so he wants, Paul wants the audience to be free. And he recognizes that freedom will only be found through Jesus in his forgiveness. And we're gonna explain that more. But he switches back to the you crowd one more time. He's saying, now you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The persuasion is not from him who calls you. This little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In the case of the offense, of the cross has been removed. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Okay, we're gonna stop there. If the call is to be free, and those that are preaching this religion is by works, really it's just slavery. And you see, in this letter, we've seen Paul's tone as a pastor. He's fairly angry, like a righteous anger. <laughs> it's like this idea, is like, I don't wanna, to punch you, I just wanna shake you a little bit. Like, what is going on? And, and so he says in chapter one, those that are stirring up this false teaching, he's saying, may they be accursed. A more literal translation of what he's saying is, may God damn those who are preaching this thing counter to Jesus. And what did he say in verse 12? This idea like, I wish those who are preaching circumcision would emasculate themselves. Meaning, if they think cutting a little makes you holy, I wish they would just go and cut the whole thing off. <laughs> it makes me wonder, like, would Paul be accepted as a pastor today? Like, can you imagine, like, somebody gets done with a counseling session with old Pastor Stan, and you're like, you know what he said? I mean, that is some hard things. That's pretty in your face. May, may God damn those that say that. May they just, I wish they would just cut the whole thing off. Like, wow. But what should a good shepherd do when the sheep of the flock are in danger? 
Make sense? Like, how bold should a shepherd be? Because he understands a little leaven, a little bit, could corrupt the whole bunch. And so how bold should a shepherd of their flock be? Because I feel like what's thrown towards shepherds is like, well, I don't know if it's a wolf. Let's just see if it eats a sheep, and then we'll go. We'll decide. Really? Like, that's how we're going to determine? Like, if that's really a wolf, just let them eat a sheep or two? And they're like, mm, yep. Paul's saying no. And I would just, on this, it's not the primary thing, but I would invite you to pray for your church leaders who are attempting to shepherd boldly and protect the flock, taking a cue from Paul. That's not to be messed with. Christ has set us free in preaching slavery is counterproductive, and so Paul comes directly at it. He wants them to not return to slavery, and that's what religion ultimately is. But again, I think the underlying fear is that if we preach Christ in this freedom, this Christian freedom we're to have in in verse one, what are people gonna do with that freedom? They might just treat Jesus and the forgiveness as like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Because here's the poor logic, right? What scripture is telling us is that we're saved by grace, not by works. And so poor logic would say, works don't save you. That's true. So therefore, they don't matter. <laughs> Bible says the first part, yeah, we're not saved by works, but just because they don't save you doesn't mean they don't matter. See, this idea that our, it's, we're saved through faith alone in Christ alone, but genuine faith is never alone. Works don't save you, but there's still a level of importance. I'll show you in scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I don't know if we have this slide, Allie. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift from God, verse nine of Ephesians two. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But here it is in verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saves us. We come to know him through Jesus. And our Christian freedom is that we would walk in the works that God prepared in advance for us to do. And so he's gonna go on and say, if you're gonna walk in freedom, stand firm in that, it's all in that same tone. We continue in verse 13. So what do we use our freedom to do? For you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What he's saying is freedom, genuine freedom in verse 13 manifest itself in doing good, not indulging the flesh. Or another way to say this, maybe the inverse way is, is if you're continuing to live for the very things Jesus died for, perhaps you're missing it. Because genuine freedom, somebody that's been forgiven, should in turn offer forgiveness to others. 
Someone who's experienced the love of God should love others. And so Jesus set us free, free from slavery and free to love. Jesus said this a little bit different. If you go back to the Gospels, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And that idea that all these 613 commands of the Old Testament can really be the Cliff Notes version is, is the Ten Commandments. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four of the commandments are vertical. They're about our relationship with God. Meaning if you wanna have a good relationship with God, don't make other gods. <laughs> good relationship with God, don't take his name in vain. And so the first four are vertical commands of the 10. The next six are horizontal between us and other people. Man, if you really love people, shouldn't steal their stuff. If you really love your neighbor, shouldn't steal his wife, right? And so first four vertical, next six horizontal. These 10 commands and Jesus say, okay, 613, 613 to 10, just make it two. Summarize, love God, love others. But here we see something interesting in verse 14. Paul says, the whole law is fulfilled now in one word, one command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember the first time reading that, you're like, I think you missed it, Paul. <laughs> like, maybe love God was what you're shooting for. We're gonna unpack this bit, but I think, most people are like, I'm okay with loving God, but do you know who I work with? Do you know who I'm married to? Like, that can be the tricky part is the loving others. And, and Paul's saying, the whole law is fulfilled in this idea that if you love your neighbor as yourself, and I really believe that this is countercultural. In fact, I've heard it said, and you can see it is, man, if the world's a cruel place, and you can't expect people to love you, so you gotta look after yourself. You gotta take care of your own. So people are gonna try and take advantage of you, so it's, it's better that you look to your own interest. This idea that if I don't love me, if I don't take care of me, who will? And here's where our text is going. We're talking Christian freedom, so I don't want you to miss this. It's kind of, how do these connect? Believe me, they do. So the, the Christian freedom that we're to have is manifesting itself specifically in a love for our neighbor. Paul would tell the Philippians like this. He would say, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, Philippians 2.1, if any comfort for his love, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Philippians 2, verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Goes on in verse five, says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself nothing, taking on the uh, death, even death on a cross. And so what he's saying to the Philippians is that those who have received the love of God should follow in the attitude of Jesus and love others. Consider them as more important than ourselves. First John 
chapter four, and we do have this slide on the screen. First John chapter four, verse seven and eight says it like this. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's this idea and you've seen it, but this idea that this represents us and you can try and be filled in all different things. You can look to be filled in your hobbies and those seem to never suffice. There's never enough money that'll kind of fill our cup. We're always searching for more, but it's when we experience the love of God, it is like holding our little Dixie cup under just a waterfall of God's mercy and grace. And and in the love of God, as we sit in that, we just are filled up. And if you can just imagine this thing being held under a waterfall, just exploding with water, just the overflow of God's love, his mercy, his grace and forgiveness to us, should result in an overflow of love, mercy, and grace onto others. And in fact, First John, what he's saying is, he'd go on to say, it'd be interesting that someone says, I know God and I know his love, I just don't love others. And be like, I don't think you know him. Because the overflow of God's love should be loving others. That's just what should happen. The freedom that we have in Christ then is this, that we don't have to be self-interested anymore. We don't have to wait for the world to really love us and to fill our cup. We stand under the source, the waterfall of God's love, his mercy, his grace. So now we don't have to be self-interested. We know where our love is gonna come from. We know where our security is gonna come from. And John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus would say it like this, and this is why this is significant. We're gonna camp out in John chapter 13, verse 35. Listen to the power of Jesus' words here. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. (laughs) You wanna get to the next part, but understand what he just said. All the people will know that you follow me by this. If you have love for one another. Now here's the hard part. Is I, preaching this, I, I feel like we get to this idea of teaching God loves us. And, and most people are like, tell me something new. Like most people, I believe the problem with this is most people perceive themselves as pretty loving. I understand that. I'm coming into a crowd, good people, here on Sunday. You perceive yourself to be pretty loving. In fact, if pressed, and we do these surveys for one of these evangelism classes we have, when pressed, most people will actually perceive themselves to be better at loving others than people are at loving them. So not only do we think we're pretty good at loving, we think we're better than others. And so now I get to a text where it's like, hey, we need to love others. This is a powerful thing. And people are like, done. <laughs> I do that. And last week, I didn't yell at a coworker when they yelled at me. But loving person. And I'm not saying we're not loving, but, but perhaps we have a, a, a faulty bar or definition. 
Because here, do you understand the power? And we'll put the John 13 slide up again. The power of our love should be so much so that all people would be able to deduct based on solely how we're loving others, they would be able to deduct and say, man, you, you must follow Jesus based on how you love others. Does that make sense? That our love that we have for others should be so powerful, so countercultural, that people will be able to deduct that we follow Jesus. A love that powerful. Again, perhaps we're working with a faulty definition of love. Here's what I mean. When your spouse says something wrong in an argument with you, like they say something that's half truth, do you feel the need to defend yourself? <laughs> Some people are just nodding. I can't look, right? You're like, uh-huh, yes. <laughs> Some of you college people are like, no, I don't have a spouse. Okay, your roommate. When somebody says something that's a little bit off, you're like, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I didn't put all the dishes in there. There was one dish in there before I put them all in. You're wrong, right? Do you feel this need to defend yourself? If someone hurts you, do you instinctively want to hurt them or de defend yourself? It, it, I'm a loving person, but don't poke the bear, right? Like, you don't get on my bad side. Is there this desire to rush to your own defense with every minor infraction or misperception about you? St. Augustine said it like this, oh Lord, deliver me from the lust of always vindicating myself. Because I think that's why he includes verse 15 in there, saying I'm, it shouldn't be new, <laughs> love each other, but he hits on what's not love, which is what we just talked about, this biting, devouring one another. Watch out that you're not consumed. That's not love. This idea that you need to be vindicated, that's not evident of a person that stands under the waterfall of God's mercy, God's grace, that should be able to, in those moments, follow the pattern of Jesus and not be quick to defend yourself, your name, right? That, that we should be so secure. Where do we get this? Jesus. Jesus Christ, who's perfect, righteous, at which point, one time they tried to stone him with rocks and kill him. <laughs> he said, now, for which of the good works are you gonna stone me? He's like, well, none of those, just because, right? Jesus, in Isaiah 53, it was prophesied. Just let this sink in. We don't have it on the screen. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, with acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You understand what Isaiah prophesied that, that Jesus Christ being perfectly righteous upon being led to be crucified didn't feel the need to defend himself. He knew exactly the Father's plan. He stood in that love Vengeance is God's, it belongs to him. Does your faith in God give him the freedom to be your vindicator? Are you free to let God fight your battles? Or do you feel compelled to have to defend yourself? Jesus, so secure in the love of the Father, his plan was able to, in security, bear the cross what he's saying in verse 15, this genuine love, shouldn't manifest itself in this back and forth. Minimally, we shouldn't be reacting poorly. More so, we should proactively be loving, overflow with love. Paul would tell the Romans in chapter 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection, so much so, outdo one another in showing honor. That's what it looks like for those that should stand under the waterfall of God's mercy, his grace, his love towards us, is that we would overflow and that we would lo love one another so boldly. And that's why 1 John says that, that, I think this is where Paul brings it full circle. He knows that the only way to be able to do that, to love others, why doing that fulfills the whole law because he knows that we can't do that apart from the love of God. Billy Graham said it like this, it is not sufficient to urge people to love their neighbor unless we lead them also to the capacity to love. Christ gives men this capacity. If we're gonna love others, if we're gonna lay down our life, we have to first understand what it is that God has done for us through Jesus. Now, because of the forgiveness that Jesus has given us, we can forgive others. Because of the patience that God has had with us, perhaps we can be patient with our spouse or our roommates. It all flows first from him. We can love because he first loved us. I said, it would be remiss to try and say, hey, let's go out, Anthem Church, and let's go try and love this community. Let's love people. Rather, it's a direct overflow of the love that God has shown us. And so, we're gonna respond here with communion. And I understand what I'm telling you is not necessarily easy. And this is why Paul is gonna continue in his letter, and I can't wait for Todd to, touch, uh, uh, to teach next week. This is a battle. Like It's like, I hear you, but my flesh wants to do one thing, and, and my spirit wants to do another. We're gonna sit in this for another week or two, I just want to at least big picture help us understand 
that if we're gonna love, we have to know the love of God. So we're gonna have an opportunity to respond with communion. And there's communion tables in every corner, so four corners, there's communion tables. And, um, and what we do here at Anthem Church is we follow uh, in obedience to the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us this to remember him. And so the bread represents his body that was broken. The blood represents his blood that was shed for us.